Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. And what a pleasure it is to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And today we celebrate the life of one of Australia's greatest athletes ever, certainly of the modern era. She is the first Australian athlete to win individual medals at four consecutive Olympics. Cycling is a sport that has always captured Australia's imagination. Uh, this young lady certainly did that. Anna Mears, what a pleasure it is to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. How's life in retirement? Uh, life in retirement, uh, strangely enough, is as busy, if not busier, than when I was an athlete. <laughs> um, it has moments of lull, but it's certainly an adjustment. It's a big change, but um, I am happy. I'm um, you know, working it out, and I feel like it was the right decision for me to retire after Rio. I'll talk to you more about that, especially in light of Commonwealth Games coming up next year on the Gold Coast. But yep. what's, the, what, what's the thing you miss most about what you did, Anna? And what's the thing that you don't miss now that you're retired? I miss most going to training. I don't miss training. <laughs> that makes any sense. Um, so I actually miss having somewhere to go every day to be around like-minded, positive, motivated, driven people. Um, but I actually don't miss the accumulative fatigue and the stress of the body that the training um, that we do as sprint, um, cyclists brings. Um, and that ultimately was what forced my hand in retirement was ultimately I, I got quite injured in the end. And uh, after 22 years, I think my body had had, had enough. <laughs> What about the body? Does it feel different now that you're in retirement? Because athletes have often said to me that when they, they stop doing that intensive training, it's almost like um, a, a buzz, a, a hook that you get when you're training week in, week out, day in, day out. Does your body feel any mm. different? Yeah, it feels hugely different. And I guess that regular exercise and activity um, and stimulus, both for the mind and the body, um, you know, re- obviously releases endorphins and it has this addictive quality to it and that really healthy lifestyle, that very active lifestyle. And my body, I, I guess it's now a year since I officially retired. My body has gotten softer. Um, I have less muscle. I have more fat. And I actually fit clothing better, um, which is <laughs> quite nice. Um, being a sprint cyclist, I was naturally um, very big in the lower half, big mm. in the quads, big in the glutes. Um, but now, obviously, that's softened down a little bit, and I can find jeans that fit. I can fit into um, jumpsuits, which I've never been able to do before. So that's been fun as well. I get to play with fashion a little more than what I was I could as an athlete. But, yeah, certainly changed, certainly changed. Do you like doing the dressing up thing uh, to go out to parties or, you know, sporting events, uh, say the races or whatever? Is that something that interests you? 
I do enjoy having the chance to dress up. I don't do it very often. Um, I'm very much still that, that country girl where I grew up. I'm very comfortable in shorts and singlets or in the Adelaide winter. I'm very comfortable in the Ugg boots and the trackies. But oh, yeah. I do very much enjoy being able to frock up every now and then, and, and I, that's enough for me. You know, I get to delve into it a little bit. So. Well, there you go. You're a girl after my own heart because uh, Ugg boots and trackie decks, <laughs> I live in them when I'm at home. That's the best in winter. Yeah, we'll talk about that childhood in Middlemount um, a little bit later in the program, but we mentioned okay. the Commonwealth Games there. After Rio, was there a difficult decision to be made or was it an easy one that you'd had enough at that stage? You said your body was telling you that you'd had enough. Was there any lure to hang on for the Commonwealth Games, given they're at home? Yeah, definitely. Um, As soon as the Gold Coast was named as the host of the 2018 Commonwealth Games, I wanted to be there. I I knew what it was like to be at a home Games. I was there in 2006 in Melbourne. Uh, I was too young to be involved in experiencing the Sydney Olympics, and I know that my career cycle just won't fit into a, a being able to experience a home Olympics again. But when the Homecom Games came around, I just thought I had in front of me the perfect fairy tale platform to end my career. I could finish in the state where it all started for me in Queensland. I could have all of my family there. I could go out with the 500 time trial, which was what. Uh, was my pet event at the start of my career through the Athens Olympic Games in 2004. Um, And I could just, you know, all these boxes were being ticked and ticked and ticked and ticked about how perfect it would be. Uh, But with six months leading into Rio, I I re-injured an old injury in my lower spine. Um, Training was extremely painful and extremely difficult. I trained for the last six months strapped from my rib cage to my pelvis. Um, and essentially, the lowest three discs in my spine uh, are damaged. You know, I've got arthritis in the facet joints. I have pars defect, which is fractures through the L5 vertebra. That vertebra is also flipped forward. I have disc dehydration, two tears and two bulges in that lower spine. So whilst it was comfortable for me to ride a bike, I couldn't train, and I couldn't train in the gym, which is where sprint cyclists get all of their strength and their power and ultimately their speed. And and having to um, lose some of that leading into the last six months in Rio, um, that's why I think my performances weren't as great as what they've been in the past. And I knew that having to hang on for another two years physically, uh, I I didn't believe that I could do it um, mentally. I didn't think I could mentally hold you know, that pain uh, for another two years to try and make it happen. And so really the Com Games was the last, the only thing that was making me want to leave Rio, think about it, give myself some time to think about it and make the decision um, as, as astutely as I could. But in the end, the body won out. I had to let it go. But at least my name's on the velodrome and I still get to go there and be affiliated in some capacity. <laughs> and you're an ambassador as well. And I'm, I am an ambassador. And when you go to the Commonwealth Games as a spectator, not as an athlete, you'll do it with a heavy heart because of the events that happened since Rio and the loss of your dear coach Gary West with that awful mm-hmm. motor neurone disease, which has, I guess, come into our consciousness a fair bit Uh, Anna, because of what Neil Danaher is going through, and certainly in AFL circles, we're very much aware of that. It must have come as such a great shock that uh, it happened so quickly with Gary. It did, it did. And that's the um, um, 
the very unknown nature of the disease itself in MND is that it affects everyone differently. There's no rhyme or reason. Um, it doesn't target by gender, age, race, religion. Um, you know, there's just no the real understanding to why it strikes and how it strikes. Um, Gary started to show some side, some effects of MND uh, in February of last year with his speech becoming impaired and we thought it was just stress because that was obviously around when Olympic selections were uh, but as we got closer to Rio his speech became very very difficult to understand um, and it was just after we got home from the Olympic Games that he was uh, officially diagnosed with MND. Um, we have since uh, myself, my manager Francine Pinnock and Gary set up Cycling Cares and the one thing that I really am proud of Gary for is that he didn't set up an organisation or a charitable group of his own and, and I know many people do that these days and it is really wonderful but I said to him there are so many of them, you know, we have a great platform here to be able to link your story to our sport with Cycling Cares but funnel and support another organisation that is already doing a fantastic job and obviously that's Neil Danaher's and Ian Davis's Fight M&D um, charitable group and um, and so we've, we've done that and unfortunately one year on from coming home from the Rio Olympic Games Gary lost his battle with M&D um, it's been about uh, almost two months now since, since we lost him and, and he has been a great loss to the cycling community but I know that our Australian cycling team will ride with some great pride for him at the Gold Coast Com Games next year. And the other thing that is happening, Anna, we're at the end of October now. In November, something very special is happening, and Gary had a lot to do with what is going to happen. We saw the big freeze at the MCG with what Neil has done over the years, but you're doing something in particular in November that is going to raise funds to fight this insidious disease. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, Ian Davis, who is a part, uh, charitable partner with Neil Danaher and Fight MND, I was working with myself, Gary and Francine, while Gary was alive on this um, Cycling Cares Challenge in November. And it's a ride, a virtual ride, that spans the whole month of November. And what we're asking people to do is uh, sign up to it. It's free. Um, do a little bit of fundraising. But the whole idea is to raise awareness. And as you said, you know, it's really come to the forefront of a lot of people's minds through all of the great work that people do in raising awareness of what MND is and how many people it affects. Um, and so we're pretty much anyone who rides a bike, um, we're not asking you to do anything special. We're not asking you to go anywhere out of your comfort zone. If you ride to work, if you're a courier, if you train, if you're a triathlete, if you take your kids out on a weekend on the bike paths, what we can do is link all those kilometres to your Strava or Map My Fitness app, link that to the Cycling Cares Challenge, and it gives you a virtual character that moves you across the country of Australia. And the goal is to move as far across Australia um, in the month of November as you can. You can do it individually. You can do it as a part of a team. And um, there's lots of really great prizes that have come on board. And all my sponsors have come on board with UVEX. The Motor Accident Commission has come on board as well. So some of the prizes include um, two tickets to the Tour Down Unders Legends Dinner and the final stage in January. Um, Shane Bannon from the cycling um, team of Green Edge has donated a um, uh, a bike, a complete bike, which will be fit to you at the end if you win that competition. Um, so wonderful to have his support on board and, and lots of great prizes along the way. So um, the more people who get into it, the more we can fundraise and the more we can raise awareness. Tell us the website where we can find out some more. Yeah, it's cyclingcares.com.au. Very simple, um, easy to remember, and you can also uh, link that through the Fight MND um, website as well. 
Well, we encourage everyone to do what they can. And as Anna said, you don't have to do anything out of the ordinary, but virtually you can contribute to what is a very worthy cause. Anna Mears is my special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll take a break and we'll find out where it all began for the great Olympian, the 11-time world champion. On the other side of this, stay with us. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Anna Mears is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, celebrating lives for more than 80 years. Anna, it all began in a little Queensland coal mining town called Middlemount all those years ago. What are your memories of Middlemount? <laughs> my memories of Middlemount are so positive. They're so happy. It's just this little town that springs out of the middle of nowhere. Um, it has one mountain, which when I was a kid on a bike felt like it went for like the length of Alpe d'Huez, but <laughs> now when I go back as an adult, it takes me like two minutes to get up there. So, <laughs> um, you know, it was a little coal mining town. Uh, you know, we had a population of 2,000. We didn't go out on the main roads because we had all of the coal trucks um, on the main road. So we just, my sister and I, we just did laps around town and it was a seven and a half kilometre lap to go from one end of town to the other. Um, so it wasn't big, but it was, um, we had a lot of freedom growing up. You know, we did BMX as youngsters. We rode our bikes all through town to our friend's house. And um, yeah, it was a very free place to grow up. Well, it sounds like a lovely childhood, but there was only one problem with Middlemount, Anna, wasn't there? There wasn't a cycling yeah. track in <laughs> Middlemount and there wasn't one sort of reasonably close either. No, no. When uh, when we were watching the Commonwealth Games on TV in 1994, like everyone does, supporting our Australian athletes, we saw Cathy Watt win gold for Australia on the velodrome in the individual pursuit. And having grown up in BMX um, and been on our, as we call them, bush bashing bikes around town, we felt very familiar with cycling, but we've never seen track cycling before. And uh, before this, and so we asked Dad, asked Dad, Dad, can we have a go at track cycling? And he looked at us with the most dumbfounded look on his face. He's like, I don't know where I'm going to find track cycling. So he looked up the yellow pages for the closest club, and it was in Mackay, 300 kilometres from oh. where we lived. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, most parents would go, oh, "That's a bit far," uh, but my parents were like, "Well, if you want to have a go, we'll drive you in." And that was some 23 years ago. Now, didn't your mum have a rule because there were four kids? Kerry was the mm-hmm. oldest, I think. And didn't mm. Marilyn have a rule that the sport that the eldest one chose was going to be the one that everyone had to do because it was just too much to take? like four kids, all those huge distances. Yeah, yeah, my mum wouldn't take four kids to four different sports. So the <laughs> oldest in the family, which was like the only boy, my brother Scott, he got to choose all the sports that all his younger sisters, so Tracy, Kerry and myself, participated in. And he put us through sports like BMX, karate, tennis, triathlon, cross country, uh, you name it. And we, we, It was a very sporty area, I guess, where we grew up. But we're kind of in two pairs six years apart. So by 1994, my oldest brother and sister, Scott and Tracy, had moved out of home to their own work and career aspirations, and it left me and Kerry at home. And that was when we were watching the Com Games and we saw track cycling and, you know, me and Kerry finally had the, the vocal choice to go, hey, we want to try cycling. <laughs> so that's, that's how it worked, yeah. And um, depending on who had what shift in the mind, because my father was a coal miner and was for some 38 years. Um, my mother was a bus driver for the coal miners and she did all the work around town, you know, from the service station to cleaning and all sorts of things. Um, depending who had what shifts, um, they would pick us up from school on a Friday afternoon, drive us 300k in 
we'd spend the weekend racing in Mackay and then they'd drive us 300k home in time for school on Monday morning and they did that every weekend for two years straight before they eventually you know thought it was taking a toll and took a package from the mines and moved us into Rockhampton and that's where I met my very first coach in Ken Reggie Tucker. And you only ever had three coaches in your professional career. Those Mm -hmm. moments where you're being driven 300 kilometres, you can't put a price on those things. We know that that is what parents do, but it just indicates the the love a parents have for their kids. I'm sure that at some of your biggest moments, you must have sat in the infield there and thought about those moments and thought about the moments that got you to Olympic championships and world championships and Commonwealth Championships. Yeah, like when I when I was in the pit and in the busy part of it, no, no, my mind was very, very blank. And some of my best races I have absolutely no recollection of because I was very in the moment. But, you know, in the lead into big competitions and, you know, when I stood on the diocese on many occasions, those, those memories certainly flooded. And on the occasions that my family or my parents were able to be in the stands, I was very emotionally overwhelmed. And a lot of people thought that, you know, when I was on the podium, particularly in London, and I showed all those emotions, you know, my parents were literally right in front of my face. So um, it's very cool when you can actually have the opportunity to give back to them a moment of pride that they've dedicated and sacrificed a lot of work for me to be able to do what I love. But, you know, in in my retirement, I've had a lot more time to be able to come home and see my family, um, which has been very important to me because obviously with being an athlete you make a lot of difficult decisions and you need a lot of um, uh, support and like-mindedness for you to be able to be successful for a long period of time like I was and I had that support from my family and in giving time back to them and being in their company since I've retired you know just little things that my dad might say one day I sit at the table with mum and dad and he goes you know what it was the hardest thing we have ever done is Mm -hmm. putting you you and your sister through sport they said we wouldn't change a thing And I I will never, I have not been able to make enough through my sport financially, nor will I ever continue to be able to repay everything that my parents worked hard for and put the money in to give us every shot that we possibly could. I'll never be able to repay them for that. But they always tell me that the pride of seeing us succeed and happy is payment enough. I'm sure they've had so many proud moments with both you and Kerry over the years, but 2002 in Manchester at the Commonwealth Games when you had to race against each other. I'm sure that was a, <laughs> an incredible moment for, for you and your sister and your mum and dad. Yeah, definitely. That was the first time we got into the senior ranks because in the sport of track cycling, uh, you can't compete internationally at the senior level until you the year you turn 19. Um, so I was 18... Kerry was 19, and at those games, Kerry won two gold medals. She was a dual Commonwealth champion, and I won my first bronze. Um, And then you fast forward to four years later in Melbourne, and that was the first time, the very first competition outside of the concrete banks here at the Kenrick Catholic Velodrome in Rockhampton that our entire family was in the stands. So our brother Scott, sister Tracy, mum and dad, you know, a few aunts and uncles as well. And at that competition, the stadium of the High Sense Arena seated 5,000 people. Mm. Right? Now, mum and dad have lived in a town where the population is 2,000. So <laughs> that's a very good you know, comparative measure to show you how overwhelming that environment was for them. But on that day when we competed, I got announced as the reigning Olympic champion and Kerry was announced as the reigning Commonwealth champion. Mm. You know, the Mears sisters really dominated um, women's sprinting for a very, very long time. And I'm very, very proud of that for both myself and Kerry. We'll talk about that Olympic championship from Athens in a moment, but I wanted to talk about your first world championship. 
when you win your oh. first world title and you stand up there and you are the best in the world. Was that yeah. the end of one journey and the start of another? Uh, I think it was kind of like the milestone marker for me mm. that I believed in myself. Up until that point, I did believe, but you always had these hesitations and doubts and fears and all that sort of stuff. And the people around me believed in me more than I did at that time. And then that was when I kind of really realized, one, I could do it. And two, I could probably make something of the sport. <laughs> you know, at that point, I was you know, still at university. I was trying to work two full-time jobs to, to pay for you know, life and the expenses because I had no sponsors. And you know, it was really tough times. And when I couldn't get work, I lent on mum and dad or I lent on other people in the family. Um, but yeah, that first world championship at the age of 20 in 2004, leading into the Athens Olympic Games, really was that flagstone you know, mile, mile marker for me. So you head to Athens as the world champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, world champion. Mm. You're at Rockhampton Airport and yes. you d- your dad sees you off and he gave you something, yeah. didn't he? He did. You know, it was an, an incredibly emotional send-off because what many people don't know was and don't realise was for track sprinters and particularly female track sprinters in that time, we only had one position available for an Australian athlete. So could you imagine what it would be like if we told our Australian swim team that you could only take one female? Yeah. And that year, Kerry got injured and we were both competing against each other and we were the number one and number two in the country, but we only had one spot. Um, And by my winning the world title, obviously that got my selection into the Olympic team. So that airport trip was very emotional because Kerry came to see me off and you can imagine the emotional burden she carried, you know, happy for me to go, but really broken and sad that she couldn't. But she was a trooper. And when I got there with my parents, my dad gave me a small gift, which um, I think mum wrapped because dad never wraps any presents. But, you know, mum, <laughs> no, well, mum we can't do that. <laughs> and it was just wrapped with plain paper and on it he'd written in pen, 33.999. And I looked at him with a very strange look and I said, what's this for? And he said, that's for you to open when you break the world record. Now, the world record at that stage was 34.000. No woman in the world had ever ridden under 34 seconds for the 500-meter time trial. And here was my dad telling me I couldn't open this present until I'd done it. So I'm like, well, thanks, Dad. That's never going to happen. And I put it in my suitcase, and I completely forgot about it until I got to Athens. And I rode my race, and uh, I rode 33.952. And uh, I realized as I was on the, on the podium, I'm like, oh, I've got this present from Dad, Mum and Dad, that I can open. So I get really excited, and uh, I go back to the Olympic Village, and I rummage through my suitcase trying to find where I'd put this little box. And I'm expecting, like, you know, some diamond earrings or a nice perfume or something like that. It turns out it was a folded cloth. It was, wasn't very big, just a white cloth with black edging. And they'd had embroidered on it. I'm a coal country kid, and I'm proud to be a coal miner's daughter, Um, which was a really beautiful, sentimental, heartfelt message because I think what my parents were trying to tell me was it didn't matter what heights I reached, what I achieved, or where in the world my um, pursuits would take me. I should always remember where I come from and the people who helped me get there. Where's that cloth now? You know what? I found it the other day because in my time that I've had with retirement, I went through all of my <laughs> bags from Com Games and Olympic Games, and I found it. I still have it. 
and up, I put it in a very special place. It deserves to be in a very special place. Anna Mears yeah. is my very special guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. When we come back, we'll talk about a moment that changed Anna's life. It's great to have your company back with more with Anna Mears after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Wonderful to have your company for another very special edition of This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals and we are with one of Australia's greatest ever athletes in Anna Mears. Anna, you're the Olympic champion in 2004. Naturally, uh, thoughts will probably flash forward about four years but before you got to Beijing, something happened to you that changed your life in lots of ways and it could have changed it even more dramatically. Yeah, definitely. I was in the middle of of the process of qualifying for the Beijing Olympic Games. I was at the third of five uh, events. It was the World Cup in Los Angeles, and I'd made the Kieran final. And uh, my coach came to me and said, look, we're seven months out from the Olympic Games. The last thing we need are any incidents or injuries or accidents. So if the girls get rough, which is quite common in Kieran racing, it's what makes it very spectacular and and one of the favourites for the crowd. He said, if the girls get rough, Go to the back, give yourself plenty of space and just make one late fast run around the outside. And that's exactly what happened. You know, it started to get a little bit rough with two laps to go. Girls were coming in from the left-hand side and around from the right-hand side. And I put the brakes on and I gave myself a bike length or two bike lengths between me and the pack in front. And at the bell with 250 metres to go, I decided this was late enough and I got out of the seat to accelerate. I was doing about 65 k's an hour. And as I went to pass the bunch around the outside, there was movement and uh, the the movement obviously got bigger from one rider to the next and found myself clipping my front wheel with the back wheel of another opponent and uh, falling and and falling, you know, in a fashion that happens at every competition. The clipping of wheels is common because obviously on a track bike, uh, we have no brakes, uh, one gear and it's a six wheel bike. So if you're wondering why at the end of the competition, we don't stop pedaling, it's simply because we can't. Um, but yeah, I clipped the wheel of an opponent and I fell to my right and I hit very hard on the steep banking and woke up after being knocked out in a lot of pain, a lot of pain in my neck. How close eventually did the doctors tell you that you came to never walking again? Yeah, well, it was probably about a six hour ordeal uh, from the time I was taken from the track floor uh, to the hospital and gone through a number of scans and tests before the doctors came back at about 2 o'clock in the morning and said that I had actually broken my neck. I had fractured the C2 vertebra. And it wouldn't be until two weeks later, by mistake of my coach, Martin Barath at the time, uh, that he would tell me I was actually two millimetres from a clean break. Had that fracture in my C2 been two millimetres longer, I would have, at best case scenario, been paralysed from the chin down. Yeah. And that information, you know, when someone you when you learn something like that, it's very easy to be caught up in the what if. And this was one of the biggest lessons I learned in, in my life and in my career: the difference between what if and what is, which was um, brought to my attention by Martin at the time. I started to think, I started to feel, I started to act and make decisions in the context of what if that two millimetres hadn't have been there. You know, what if I had have been paralysed from the chin down? What if I had have died out of that accident? And it sent me on this very negative spiral mentally. And he said to me, he just said, you know, Miss Anna, you're focusing on the wrong, one wrong word. He said, you, you keep saying what if. Mm. He said, you just have to ask yourself what is. And what is was that two millimetres saved my life and that I was getting better and stronger every day and I would come back and I would come back to my full self and I should be thankful for those two millimetres. And that 
completely changed my attitude and understanding to the situation and allowed me then to move forward with the, the extensive rehabilitation that went on in the next five, six months. How long did it take you to get back on the bike again? Ten days <laughs> I was back on the bike. Um, I went from lying flat for 10 days to uh, being supported on an indoor trainer. I pedaled for one minute. That's all I could do. We'll talk about what happened in Beijing just seven short months later, but I want to ask you about the injury and the way that it was spoken about. And I want to relate it to someone else that I've spoken to who had a very similar injury. And that's Glenn Boss, the jockey, who won three Melbourne Cups aboard Maccabi Diva. He nearly finished up in a paralysed state after a race fall in Macau, I think it was. And he talked to me about the fact that he, he didn't want it brought up all the time. He didn't want to be known as the jockey who came back from a broken neck and won the Melbourne Cup. He said, I just do what I do. Was there a sense of that with you as well? As well-meaning as people were, did you get sick of people just talking about it? No, not really, because I think for me, my naivety and my young age helped the situation. After Beijing, I was that girl who broke a neck. Mm. And then by the time I got to London, people actually recognised me for who I was and what I'd achieved and what I'd been through. But um, without that, my career would not have been as defined as it was, mainly for a couple of reasons. You have pre-accident, you have young Anna, and you have post-accident, which is you know the very mature, um, having gone through those experiences and grown from it. And the thing that um, I think I took out most from my accident and the result of winning silver in Beijing seven months later was that I realised my capability. And it's not until you're at a really low point or you've got your back up against a wall that you ask yourself, is it worth it? Is what I'm chasing, is going to the Olympic Games, is wearing the green and gold, is striving for an Olympic medal worth it? And there's only one person who can answer that, and that was me. And that really questioned my value in what it was I was doing and what it was I was striving to achieve. And the second question was, am I worth it? And the answer to that was yes. The most dangerous athlete and the most dangerous person is someone who's been through a very difficult experience and come out of it with the same passion, if not more, than what they had when they went into it because they've realised their capability. And I took a great deal of gratitude and appreciation for what I was doing, for who I was involved with and, and what I had in my life as a result of that experience. Without that experience, I wouldn't have propelled to be the athlete I was eight years later. You were so used to standing on the top step of the dais in your decorated career. In light of everything mm-hmm. that had happened just seven months previously, was that silver medal, even though Victoria Pendleton was standing <laughs> on the top step, was that, yeah. a, was that a crowning moment in your career given everything that you'd been through? Yeah, it was. You know, initially, I'll be honest, when I crossed the line and I was beaten convincingly by mm. Victoria Pendleton in the final, I was really disappointed. <laughs> but it didn't take me long to realise that that was the incorrect assessment of what I was feeling. What I was feeling was just sheer relief because I had gone gung-ho from the moment I got home from hospital to the moment I got to stand on that podium. And yeah, I was one step shy of where I wanted to be, but that one step gave me enough motivation and inspiration to work for the next four years to change that result in London. You explained beautifully, Anna, the difference between what if and what is. I want you to explain three other words for me that uh, happened after Beijing, between Beijing and London. Know your enemy. (laughs) What did that mean? That, you know, a lot of people think that that means um, knowing who your competition is, but really knowing your enemy is knowing yourself. 
And my coach, Gary West, who we've lost recently with MNZ, he came on board to work with me after Beijing. And this was essentially him showcasing to me that I needed to change. I needed to change my approach, my strategies, my skill set, everything in order to take on the best in the world, which was Victoria Pendleton at her home games in London. In doing that, I had to first know my opponent. So we did a lot of analysis work on Victoria Pendleton, working out where her strengths and weaknesses were. And then we turned that to myself so that I could work out what I needed to work on to be able to counteract her strengths and weaknesses. It was a huge strategic game that we played. It took us three years to nut it out, but it played out to perfection come the London Olympic Games. And so you're on the start line against Queen V, a woman who hasn't been beaten at world level for about six years, and three, three years of preparation is about to come down mm-hmm. to just a few seconds. Yes, we worked out. So in an individual sprint, you have to beat your opponent not just once, but twice because it's the best of three matchups. So if you do the same thing every time, you become predictable and predictability ultimately leads to defeat. And so we worked out within that three-year period, we worked out how to beat Victoria Pendleton 18 months before the London Games. And we tried it at a competition, which was the World Champs in 2011. And we were successful with implementing what's called the track stand, balancing the bike in a stationary position. Mm. And by my doing the track stand, it forced Victoria from her strongest position, which is at the back, having her opponent in front of her, to her weakest, which is at the front with an opponent behind her. Now, in that analysis phase, we realized that Victoria Pendleton was so good at controlling her opponent that when she was at the back and she had her opponents in front of her, she would win 95% of the time. That's how good she was. And everyone, myself included, was trying to beat Victoria Pendleton in this position. And we realized for me to be successful, I didn't have to try and beat her at a best game. We had to try and work out how to get her out of the best game and beat her at a worst game. Mm. And so we worked that out a year and a half out from London and we didn't play that card or that strategy or that skill until the final in London. We threw plan B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J at Victoria and every other woman in the world up until that point. And I practiced plan A at training every day with my teammates. So we're sitting on the start line and the first race is run. We collide. I actually lose it by one one thousandth of a second. But the decision is reversed after the video is reviewed and Pendleton has been deemed to impeded my run. And so I get awarded the first win. So now we go into the second race and I'm leading it. And so for me to have my best chance to win just one more race, to win that gold medal, I have to implement this track stand. I have to force Victoria Pendleton into the front position. And so she sets up like she has in the last year and a half, expecting the same play that I've thrown her for the last 18 months, except I don't do that. I turn sharp right up the steepest part of the track. I bring my bike to a standstill, and she's not anticipating it at all. Mm. We catch her off guard. We force her into the front. And like they say, the rest is history. The rest is history. This may be an improper question, but I want to get your response anyway. When, mm-hmm. when you cross the line and you realise you're a gold medalist, was it a feeling of, well, that's the biggest mountain that I've ever had to climb and the plan has come off and we've done it brilliantly? Or given your frosty <laughs> relationship with her, was it a case of up yours, I'll beat you? No, you know what it was? It was almost like, please excuse the French, this is what went through my head. Holy shit, we've done it. (laughs) So it was more along the lines of me and my team, my coach, and the incredible amount of people that went into that strategy and teaching me all those new skills and helping me acquire those new skills and all those frustrating processes and all those times I got beat. Finally, we did it. (laughs) 
And, it, you know, it wasn't about that rivalry and it wasn't about anything other than trying to speak the best to become the best. That's where I got all of my joy. There was a nice little moment not long after you crossed the line where Victoria actually came and grabbed your hand and held it in the air. Did that mean anything to you, given the frostiness of the relationship that you two had had over the years? At the time, it surprised me. But in hindsight, I think it was really one of the most lovely sporting gestures that I've ever experienced. Just imagine the hype and the media hype that we had around our rivalry. Imagine for Victoria Pendleton to lose in front of a home crowd as defending Olympic champion. I could imagine uh, how much that would hurt. And I think it said a lot about her character for her to do that, to offer her hand to me and raise raise both our hands down the whole back straight was really beautiful. That moment meant so much to so many people who love their sport and love the Olympic Games. And a story that you're probably not aware of, Anna, um, the great broadcaster Drew Morfitt, who called a lot of cycling over the years. I'm aware passed away a bit more than a month ago and I asked him on this program what his fondest memory was of all the sports that he's called and he talked about that race and he said that was the thing that stuck in his mind the most and when we said farewell to him at the MCG going back a few weeks ago they played that race at his memorial service and you could hear the emotion in his voice it meant so much to him and it meant so much to a lot of Australians. Oh, that's very special. That's very special. I, I know how much it meant to a lot of Australians because where I've met people, they've told me, they're like, you know, I was standing on my couch and I was screaming at the TV yeah. and then the next morning I had to apologise to my neighbour but then they start realise they were doing the same thing. But, you know, commentators and people who narrate our sports like Drew, they give a whole nother level to the viewer who's watching it and I've watched back that commentary with the footage myself. I actually use that in my talks and presentations because of the emotion that it draws. Well, you left him with a great memory and you left us with a great memory from London. We'll come back with our final segment in just a moment and talk about the road to Rio with Anna Mears. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals with 23 chapels across Victoria and online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Back to wrap it up with Anna on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan. Our final segment with Anna Mears on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Rio was your last Olympics, Anna, but the year before Rio saw some highs and lows. A a high in your professional life, you were able to win your 11th world title, but personally it was a tough time for you around about 2015. Yeah, you know, one of the... I had four goals that kept me in the sport after London um, and I felt like I could still improve and contribute um, and... I'd achieved one of those goals in 2015, was winning one more world title. Um, I wanted to, at the time of London, I was equal most successful in the world, and I didn't want to be equal. I wanted to be the the best. (laughs) Um, So it took me three years to try and win one more world title, and that happened in in March of 2015. Um, But, yeah, like you said, I was experiencing some very difficult um, personal issues at the time, and that four years between London and Rio was very tough for me. My marriage broke down. My 15-year relationship and nine-year marriage broke down. I got injured leading into the games and obviously my coach Gary West was diagnosed with motor neurone disease and I was one of only few in the team that knew at the time Um, and so the challenge for me in the time between London and Rio was very emotional. Speaking of emotions, the Maracanã Stadium, the opening ceremony of the Olympic Games, 33 years of age, you walk in 
and you carry the flag. What was that moment like? I know. I honestly was just telling myself, don't drop the flag. Don't drop the flag. <laughs> <laughs> don't drop the flag. <laughs> um, look, when, when Kitty Chiller asked me to be the flag bearer and as a result, um, team captain of the Rio Olympic Games, I was overwhelmed with pride, with honour. I'd spent my whole life dreaming about being an Olympian, dreaming of being an Olympic champion. I never contemplated being an Olympic flag bearer, Olympic team captain. To be the first Australian to walk into the Matakana Stadium um, and, you know, you walk in there and, you know, like those old-time movies where the distance just doesn't seem real. It looks like it's just a painting. Mm. That's what the stands look like. Like the people just went on and on and on and the noise was just deafening. Um, it was an incredible experience to be the very first Australian to walk out there because we hold great pride in our history of sport, particularly at the Olympic Games. Australia is one of only two nations who have ever competed at every modern-day Olympic Games. And for me to be uh, the 31st person to carry the flag and lead the team into that arena was something that I, I still hold so very dear to my heart. Well, as one bloke who was sitting up the back of the stands in the American R Stadium that night, I get goosebumps when I think about Australia coming into the mm-hmm. stadium. So thank you for that moment. It didn't quite end the way that you might have liked at Rio, but there were tears at the end. Did you realise straight away when you finished 10th in the sprint that that was it? I knew all along I was going to struggle with the individual sprint and the, and carrying the expectation that I had with me to defend or regain my Olympic title was not realistic for me given the injury that I had. My best chance was in the team sprint where we just missed bronze by a few hundredths of a second uh, and the Kieran where it was rolling with pace and a bunch event and that was where I won my bronze medal. In the individual sprint, I didn't like finishing 10th. It was very, it hurt a lot. I take a lot of pride in what I do. I know um, the effort, not just myself has put in, but an enormous amount of people who mean the world to me. And so I was more upset because I felt like I had failed them and I had disappointed all those people. In saying that, I did win a bronze. Yeah. And I think sometimes it can be easily forgotten how hard it is to be number one. And the reason I say that is because in hindsight, in the year that I've had out of the sport, no athlete from any sport has ever been able to medal individually at four consecutive games until that bronze medal. Mm. So, you know, it's hard enough to do it at one game, two games, three games. I was able to do it at four. And so successful or not, gold medal or not, to me that bronze is a huge success. And so it should be regarded as that. Um, as you said, nobody had done it before. Anna Mears, you're a great champion. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Pete. This is your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back with another edition next week right here on 1116 SEN, Melbourne's home of sport. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.